Dismissals such as boys will be boys and not all men are ingrained in our world and the purity culture of our youth sold the same excuses with a spiritual spin. Can we break the toxic cycle and recover a healthy identity for men? I think we need one, don't we? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by my co-host Ian Reid, Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And we welcome our very special guest today from Oxford in England, Zachary. Now, is it pronounced Wagner, Zachary? Yes, Wagner is just fine. I was yeah. tempted to call you Wagner, but there we go. Wagner, yeah. That's maybe maybe some <laughs> sometimes in the sometime in the Germanic past of my family history, it would have been Wagner. Yes, um, there must be a connection there somewhere. Um, yep. Zachary, an ordained minister and editorial director for the Centre for Pastor. Uh, pastor theologians. He's currently pursuing a PhD in New Testament at the University of Oxford, and his new book from IVP America is called Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality. Rito and Zachary, hi, welcome to the show. Yeah, delighted to be here. Thanks so much for the invite. Looking forward to the conversation. Uh, Rito, hi to you too. Hello. Yeah, hello. I'm here. Hi. You are here, yes, unexpectedly. It's great to have you back with us. Now, uh, Zachary, you write, your, your opening sentence in the book is this, it's a concerning time to be a man. Now, why is it a concerning time to be a man? Yeah, I think for all manner of reasons, I think the kind of cultural changes in the West, such as it is, and also around the world, I, I suppose, since the Industrial Revolution, really, I think there's been an advancement of technology and all manner of things that have changed uh, traditional male vocations and the you know senses of purpose that men had very clearly outlined for them associated with things like physical strength are becoming less and less uh, needed, perhaps, and less and less prominent, less and less central in the way society is put together. So that's kind of macro, and we could go all sorts of directions with that. But I'm also thinking, and my book focuses uh, specifically on male sexuality, and you might even say male uh, eroticism, I, I, I guess, the experience of, of uh, eroticism and, and sexuality and sexual desire as a man. And I think uh, since the sexual revolution, Again, a bunch of just questions up in the air, and I don't think those are all all bad by any means. I don't, you know, I'm not one of those uh, people talking about masculinity, just saying we need to go back to the way everything was. I think uh, a lot of cultural movements have raised good and important questions uh, about what it means to be a man. So, yeah, I think all all manner of reasons it's a confusing time to be a man i think and uh particularly from a, a christian context uh but also a broader cultural context since the me too movement which started in you know, western united states and, and hollywood and then the, relatedly the church Two movement has placed a lot of emphasis on the uh, stark and important problem of sexual abuse uh broader broadly in the culture sexual harassment against women primarily, uh, but also, tragically, this pattern shows up all too often in the church. And I think not only men in society in general have good good questions uh, and important questions to ask themselves about sexuality, but certainly also in the church about the way we have conceived of male sexuality, male and the way that conception of sexuality relates to male identity broadly, and then certainly what it means to be a, a godly man um, and a man who is uh, living into the kingdom of God that, that Christ inaugurated. So, 
What in fact is toxic masculinity? Yeah, I think you can go, you know, Oxford English Dictionary on this and you get something. And I think I, I quote something similar in the book. It is, according to that type of definition, a way of living as a man or a cultural concept of masculinity that encourages or perpetuates a male identity, a masculine ideal that is perhaps aggressive, emotionally repressed, entitled, uh, violent, any, any number of kind of bad things you could catalog that I think you objectively look at many of these many of these characteristics and you're like okay well that that's not that's not good we don't want to encourage humans to be like this or or men specifically to be like this um but i think it's become a bit of a cultural buzzword uh to describe the unsavory cultural values around masculinity and in my book i take a bit of a christianized theological angle on what is toxic masculinity and i define it as a way of uh, living as a man that dehumanizes others or dehumanizes the self. And by that, I, and I think most people in the kind of broader discourse around toxic masculinity, not meaning to imply that it's bad to be a man or that maleness in general is evil or sinful. Uh, certainly not. And from a Christian perspective, men like women are created in the image of God. So there's nothing there's nothing embarrassing or problematic about maleness, but there is uh, and there have emerged not only in our immediate cultural context, and perhaps you could tell me a bit about your context in, over in New Zealand uh, versus the United States, which I'm much more familiar with. In our immediate context, there have emerged patterns that I believe are dehumanizing, not only for the people that men are in relationship with, uh, but also for men themselves. Uh, and that's that's how I would define it. Yes, well, I'm going to bring Rido in here because I think in Rido, you you might may or may not agree with me. In in Australia and New Zealand, we have um, a very very good examples of what I think of as toxic maleness. <laughs> would you agree or disagree? Yeah, one one of the discussions that often happens uh, within New Zealand is the the inability of men to open up uh, yes. and to 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 talk. And so there's been quite a bit of discussion around suicide, in particular around how that yes. is affecting suicide. I think that's probably more prominent in New Zealand that not the the not necessarily the violent kind of side to it, but more the more of the the shut down emotionally yes. to relationships kind of side yes. to it is really big issue. Yeah, I think New Zealand and Australia. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rita. It's my perception has had a long problem with what I call blokiness <laughs> and <laughs> you, you might like blokiness Rito but I, I've, I don't much like blokiness no, I think I think it kind of it comes from the pioneer kind of um, colonial kind of spirit of you know because people had to get on with what they had you know kind of and there yeah. wasn't a lot when they first when people first came to these places yeah uh, I mean I think of my own father who was a World War II pilot and his brothers, who all a couple two of whom were were, were killed during the war, uh, they were mm. gentlemen in the sense of gentle men, uh, yes. tough men, tough men. They'd been to to war, they'd seen combat, they'd seen people dying, but 
there was a gentleness about them, and I'm, mm. I don't find that with a lot of a lot of men these days. Mm. This, I think we've lost a sense of a gentleman, and they were gentle with their wives and families. At least that's how mm. my family were, but maybe that's just me. You've got a big a big part of your book, Zachary, is about purity culture. Now, this I want mm. to tap into this too, and Rita, I'll bring you in in a bit. But what was purity culture, and and why did it have? And you've suffered from this yourself, Zachary, because you write mm. about it. What was purity culture and why did it have so much influence some 30 or so years ago? Yeah, so I define purity culture as the rhetorical strategies, ministry approaches, and um, kind of almost consumeristic resource system around Christian sexual ethics that emerged in response to the sexual revolution. I don't, you know, that's not verbatim, but that's, a, that's a, I think, a decent paraphrase of what I, what I say in the book. So uh, sexual revolution, you know, all of this, I think it's accurate to say, kind of starts in America and then is exported around the world, certainly around the, the Anglophone world. But the sexual revolution, which you've already alluded to, kind of turns the world upside down in so many ways in terms of the centrality of family in a kind of post-Victorian, you know, Anglophone world and, you know, a long held assumption not that everybody reserved sex for marriage but there was an ideal that sex and marriage go together and that uh children should be fathered and mothered legitimately within that within that union and uh those things were kind of up for debate in a way that they hadn't been before and certainly the advent of uh, easy access to contraception and uh, abortion as well as uh, the rise of, you know, STDs when I was growing up, but there are STIs now and different uh, things having to do with the AIDS scare in the 80s in particular, all manner of pressures around these questions having to do with sexuality. And the American church, in response to this, created a renewed emphasis on uh, sexual chastity, uh, the marriage Lots of books, lots of events, lots of kind of resources and organizations being thrown into this uh, legislative kind of initiatives having to do with sex education in an attempt to preserve and reclaim a traditional Christian sexual ethic uh, that taught that sex and marriage go together. But what I think happened is that one so much around Christian discipleship of young people, certainly teenagers, centered on this question of, quote unquote, saving yourself for marriage. It became, and you know, this was very much my experience growing up in the uh, American uh, evangelical church in the early aughts is about when I was in these formative years. And uh, that was in many ways the be all and end all of Christian discipleship was about remaining a virgin until you get married, uh, avoiding all all types of not just sexual immorality, uh, but sexual feelings sometimes is the way it shook out. And just several massively influential books that were published in this time. The one that people often think about is I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris, sold over a million copies. Uh, but also I think for men in particular, Every Man's Battle which was also published around this time, I believe, in the early aughts, um, and sprouted an entire kind of 
series of books, you know, every young man's battle, every woman's battle, every young woman's battle, every man's this and that and the other thing. That series, if I'm not mistaken, has sold over 3 million copies since it is, is since it was published. And these, I mean, we can get more into the details on it, but uh, one of the central theses of my book is as well-intentioned as the purity movement was of the 90s and the 2000s. Well-intentioned in the sense of, I, I believe, trying to mitigate actual suffering that was happening in the world as a result of the sexual revolution. Sexual revolution isn't all bad. There's, I think, some important important cultural shifts that came out of the sexual revolution that I I, I think are, are helpful, but also some very negative ones that purity culture was trying to redress. But in so doing, uh, purity culture, I think, led to a lot of malformation of uh, Christian young people's view of sex. And uh, my book talks about some of the ways that affected men in particular. I'm going to come on in a minute to ask how it affected you, but I yep. want to just, just dig down a little bit deeper with the purity culture. How, how did purity culture then contribute to the culture of toxic masculinity in the church? What was the link? Why did we end up with predatory pastors? How did that, how mm. did that emerge out of, out of the purity culture? Yeah, I it's hard to say and I'm not a sociologist or a social scientist, you know, I can't draw causational lines uh necessarily. But what I will say is that purity culture kind of broadly and certainly the every man's battle books and similar resources perpetuate a conception of maleness as hypersexual. What it means to be a man is to be kind of helplessly and hopelessly erotic in your view of the world um and certainly your view of uh of women in particular and that's a cultural trope you know you get this in rom-coms and sitcoms and all manner of things that men only think about one thing and it's it's disgusting and that's all that's they're just kind of meatheads and their their brain might as well be in their crotch because that's all they're ever thinking about and that's a cultural trope that for whatever reason christians adopted and almost baptized as this is the christian view of masculinity is this like virile you know a sexual conquest aggressive this is just what it means to be a dude and then in Rather than, I think, discipling men away and young men away from a hypersexualized vision of what it means to be male and say, actually, in Christ and through scripture and the theological tradition, men should not conceive of themselves as helplessly and hopelessly uh, sexual beings, animals almost, um, but should instead pursue the fruits of the spirit or, or any number or any number of uh, kind of things you could address there. Go, go ahead. Yeah. So women were almost regarded as a threat by purity. Yes. Hence yes. emphasis on women being covered from head to foot almost. Yes. Not and I think, head. yeah, I was going to say, yes, women's sexuality and women's bodies were viewed as threatening because if you have a conception of men that if a man sees a woman's body in this circumstance or in this mode of dress it's a fact of male nature that he will become aroused be tempted to lust be enticed towards sexual sin or any number of things so the pressure then because it's it's just a brute fact of male nature and it can't be helped and we would talk a lot about male self-control but oftentimes self-control involved 
having boundaries and barriers and actually creating space between yourself and women, which to me, I I think about that. I'm like, is that self-control really? That's avoidance. And of course, the, you know, the Proverbs talk about all sorts of wise parameters for uh, avoiding relationships that could be compromising or situations or all that. So I'm not saying there's no wisdom to creating barriers between yourself and certain relationships and situations. That's not what I'm saying. But that is not the same thing, it seems to me, as cultivating a virtue of self-control, which again is one of the, one of the fruits of the spirit. But so women are threatening; men need to avoid them, and the responsibility is almost placed on women exclusively to make sure that men don't fall into these sinful and dehumanizing patterns and behaviors. Because again, we've adopted and baptized this conception of maleness as the brute fact of sexual just lack of restraint and and because of that lack of restraint i was just this is the point i was trying to get to is that the vision of finding the other sex is threatening actually goes both ways because women live in fear of men because men are animals and if you act the wrong way around them they could take advantage of you or assault you heaven forbid um and then of course, women are threatening because their bodies entice and trigger all these sorts of sinful impulses in men. Yeah, Rito, um, do you want to comment on that before we move on? I'm, go- I'm going to ask Zach about his own personal experience in his own marriage, but do you want to feedback on? on- um, yeah, and I think in particular the, the word that you use, which is really important, is responsibility, right? It, it passes all the responsibility away from men onto women, which is the opposite, I think, of what the Bible talks about in terms of maleship, you know, kind of, be, of maleness is taking responsibility for yourself and your own, you know, who you are as a human being and how you relate to other people. And it says, you're the problem, not me. I need to yeah. take, you know, kind of being a man, you know, in my view, being a man is the, the one kind of key thing is saying, I need to be responsible for who I am mm. and the image. So the, the person I am must be, aligned to who Jesus is. And that'll look different for, for each one of us, obviously. Yes. But, and that's, I think that's the beauty of being a man or, and a woman as well, you know, that that my identity in Christ actually looks different to yours mm. in terms of the way that in terms of the way that it's played out in practice. But it, it tried to conform everyone, right, into to this one we need to all be exactly the same, you know, kind of yes. and all our relationships need to be exactly the same. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and um Let's come on and talk about well. Before we come on and talk about the Lord Jesus, who surely is the example of male uh, of maleness for us, not an aggressive macho man at all, not the way I read him, although a very strong man. Obviously, he died on a cross. How did all this affect your own marriage, Zachary? You write about yeah. it's very it's very painful and very difficult, isn't it? You had a long time to recover from the wounds of all this. Yes. So another thing that we haven't quite touched on as it relates to purity culture was the way it took this cultural value, idolization of sex, really, and pursuit of sexual fulfillment, and again, Christianized it. Rather than discipling young people away from the worship of sex, it framed up following, you know, quote unquote, the Bible or God's vision or rules for sexuality as the way to guarantee your best sex life. So don't have sex before marriage. Make sure your only sexual partner is your spouse. Avoid 
uh, things that entice you to lust, pornography, masturbation, any number of things that you can kind of rattle off these rules. And then as a reward for your faithfulness, God will uh, pay back or uh, there will be a return on your investment or down payment of your sexuality in your marriage. And I can't tell you how many times I heard uh, if you don't have a sexual history beforehand, your spouse doesn't have a sexual history, you'll come together and this will just be a beautiful, free, satisfying, easy uh, part of your relationship. Uh, that did not pan out for me, as I say uh, in in the book and uh, tell with 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 some detail, I think, in terms of how that played out in my life. Number one is that my wife and I, we neither of us had been uh, intimate with anyone else before before that relationship, and we uh, saved ourselves until after we were married. Again, save save yourself is, I think, a, a pretty problematic phrase that featured uh, pretty pretty uh, much in this. Thing. So uh, air quotes around save save ourselves, but we held off on on being intimate until after we were married, and it pretty much immediately found that this was not clicking or working exactly in the way that we had led to believe that it would. And you know, some years of marriage, we were working with that and trying to make the best of it. And I know for me, there was this sense that I had been sold a bill of goods about what sex in marriage would be like. And I think the flip side of that experience for my wife, who's very open about this, and in, in my book, actually, she gives uh, her consent and permission for me to talk about this and and share about our, our relationship. But I think for her and many women I, I know can relate to this, sex was all about obligation. It was about serving the needs, quote unquote, of your husband and being available to him so that because that's what he deserves, I suppose, and that's what marriage is supposed to be. And also to protect him from straying into sexual immorality. That's, But for her, there was very little, for the most part, very little enjoyment in, in sex. And it was all, it was all obligation. So that led to, you know, those two things came together into a pretty dysfunctional, I think, and 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 sparse and intermittent uh, intimate life for us, as well as and I should say, you know, just because I didn't have didn't have sex with anyone before marriage doesn't mean I was a, a, a saint completely as it relates to, to my sexuality. I think like many men my age, I had early experiences and exposure with pornography and 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 masturbation was certainly a big uh, part of my experience in my uh, high school and, and college years. And I found, number one, I found the purity culture resources that sought directly to address that, not entirely unhelpful, but in many ways unhelpful and undecisive in kind of addressing that uh, habituation that I had grown into. And when you're hearing constantly that your sexuality and your quote-unquote purity is the be all and end all the essence of your pursuit of Christ. And you feel like you're constantly failing at that. Like I think many uh, young men and even young women uh, in in that time with, you know, the advent of smartphones and high-speed internet and all of this, it was easier to access sexually explicit uh, material than ever. And man, that leads, leads to an experience of shame that is very, very difficult to shake. So I'm carrying all this baggage and shame into the marriage and then my wife has this sense of obligation when, while also struggling to enjoy 
uh, sex herself, this this set us up for some real struggle. Yes, it must have been very difficult, and and it is a messy business. And uh, yes, uh, and you write so beautifully and honestly about it. Thank you very much. Now, in the, we've only got a few minutes left, I think. But can I mm -hmm. ask you both, Rito and Zachary? Uh, well, first of all, Rito, come back with any questions you want to ask Zachary, and then I want to ask you both about boundaries, boundaries mm. in Christian dating. We probably need to deal with that. Fire away, Ian. Why me? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you must have questions. Oh, do I, uh, questions? Yeah. Uh, how, how do we? My, my big question is: How do we learn? You know, kind of what seems to be happening. What happens in? churches is that we we move from one fixation to another uh, mm. and you know kind of we move from the purity culture to i think in my kind of world the the church planning kind of culture and and you know kind of entrepreneur kind of ship which yeah. i think has a, a whole other huge raft of problems which stem i think from the same the same kind of issues uh but what do you how, how do we learn you know how do we grow as a church and how do we actually say we need to stop this and we need to actually understand um, who we are in God's kingdom and who we are as individuals and love each other well in local communities. How, how do we do that and learn? Mm, great question. I mean, it is a, and it's a, it's a huge question and one that I feel, you know, under underqualified to address in some sense for me, what I try to do and it's, and it's, and it's simple and it could seem trite and almost boring, but one thing I try to bring men back to and also women in terms of the way they think about the men that they're in relationship is the centrality of uh, the fruit of the spirit. And, you know, you can rattle those off in, in the translation that I grew up on. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, we've already talked about, and self-control, we've also, also talked about. I think if that's what it means to be a virtuous Christian, and by extension, then a virtuous Christian man. You look at the, that list, there's not a lot of kind of like masculine macho virtues there. In fact, you you could argue, I think they have a bit of a, a feminine slant, depending on the cultural context that you're in, you know, and certainly in, in the modern Western context, you, you were talking about what was it, bloke, bloke, uh, blokeism or, or something. Yeah, blo blo bloke blokeiness. Yeah. We have a lot of that. Blokeiness. Yes, 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 yes. And I think there's some version of that in, in lots of cultures with, with maleness. But I don't know if God in Christ came to make men more manly according to some cultural standard of what it means to be manly, uh, but rather um, came to renew our, our bodies and uh, form us into the image of his son and a true humanity, which is which is characterized by these fruits of the spirit. And it doesn't mean there's something wrong with being physically strong or enjoying sports or any number of things that we might uh, associate with maleness, but the calling on a Christian man's life is love of God and love of neighbor and uh, characterized by the fruits of the spirit. And I think that can apply to all manner of things. You know, you're talking about this entrepreneurial culture uh, that I, I don't know as much about in terms of I haven't done as much thinking about how to kind of redress some of the downsides of that. But I do think Coming back to basics, you know, the greatest commandment that Jesus talked about to love God and love neighbor and what it means to be a virtuous Christian, put that central and then see what, what God does in, in creating human uh, flourishing out of that and uh, thriving communities. Right. Well, guys, we've got eight minutes left, so um, I'm going to fire two quick questions uh, yes. to, you, to you both, I think. What sort of picture of masculinity then does the Lord Jesus give us? 
Yeah, well, I think that's an easy continuation from what I was just talking about, because I think there there are people who want to make Jesus, and you can you can look at the books, and they sell very well, which is alarming, perhaps, uh, that want to make Jesus into a, guy, a guy's guy, a dude's dude. But the fact of the matter is that the Gospels do not portray him as such, for the most part. Um, of course, Jesus exhibits many virtues that I think if you're if you're looking for it, you're like, oh, he's courageous, he stands up to power. But I mean, are are women not able to be courageous? Should women not look at that as an example of how to how to live like Christ? And you know, he was was crucified and died on a cross, but that actually wasn't considered in the ancient world a very manly thing. In fact, it was designed to be maximally emasculating and humiliating. And it was a way of demonstrating that this guy is not virtuous, is not manly, you could say, because of the close association between virtue and man- manliness in the ancient world. So um, I think for us, we might look back and say, well, that was very heroic. But certainly in the ancient world, it was not considered heroic to die on a cross. So, and Jesus, when in self-describing, he says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. And the, the the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. None of this strikes me as slotting into a very kind of strong macho masculinity conception. And then, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about God choosing the weak things of this world to shame the strong. So this kind of centralizing and valorizing of male strength as a Christian virtue, I do not see in the New Testament, quite frankly, and in fact, quite the opposite. Yeah, uh, he, but he can be, I mean, Ian, we've just been doing Mark, and we've remarked together discussing it, haven't we, how, how assertive, though, the Lord Jesus can be, particularly, yes. in, particularly in intellectual argument and debate. Yes. <laughs> He's a marvelous. I mean, he's a marvelous uh, communicator and man, yes. great immense intellect and wisdom as well. There's so much more. So rounded. You want a picture of a man, an ideal man? He's my picture of an ideal man. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, in the two minutes we've got left or so, uh, one last question: boundaries and dating. Because I know I'm going to get asked about this. Rito <laughs> and Zachary, boundaries and dating. You're the pastors. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what to do. Yeah, I'm, Rio, I'm curious to hear from you, and then I can go. <laughs> That's the big thing that we're dealing with. You know, well, in the Western world, I think it's the big one is cohabitation. It just seems mm. to be so. We, yeah, before you know, I know that's that's way down the line for for where most people are. You know, I just constantly are battling against that, saying to people, "Don't live together before you're married. It's it's not it's not healthy. It's not good." That's probably that's probably the big one. That, that yeah, we're and dealing, I think that I'm dealing. Yep. Yeah. Well, well, I'd add to that is you know, and I received that and received that. I think again, I I would agree. Wise counsel uh, when I was growing up, my wife and I we didn't move into it, it didn't move into together until after we were married. But I think an important thing to add to that conversation is why the hesitation to be married in the in the first place. And I think there have been cultural movements and pressures that have. Uh, artificially, in many cases, delayed marriage. But I think legitimately, in many cases, young people at an age when they used to be married, it's financially or practically prohibitive in many cases. So I think there are good and important conversations to have around that. Um, I think as it relates to as it relates to boundaries and dating kind of earlier, 
as, like you were talking about. One, I would just say boundaries are really important. I think there's an overreaction sometimes to purity culture where it's, well, there are no boundaries and sexuality is good and, and uh, you know, God made our bodies to, to, to desire this. But, you know, you want to talk about consent. Boundaries are a conversation about consent between you and the person that you're with. So it's an important, you know, it's an important thing to establish in a dating relationship. What, what sort of things are we comfortable with, not only with each other and with our own bodies, but before God? I think that's a really important conversation. And then I would add to that the centrality of human dignity and that other people aren't playthings or things to be used or things to just be enjoyed or to recreate with, but rather that they are uh, dignified human beings created in the image of God. And that should inform all manner of things. So a, a couple principles um, that I, I'll just I'll just say briefly. Yeah, one minute. Yeah, one minute. Um, <laughs> yeah, one minute. I I mean I think those were that those were that the, the, starting with human dignity and remembering that don't overreact and throw boundaries out the window as a bad or necessarily oppressive thing. And one thing I'll add is, and again, this is. This is a thing that purity culture, I think, overemphasized, but it is important, important for young people in particular to have relationships with parents and mentors and people who can speak wisdom into their lives. Because, you know, if you're 14 or 19 or even 23, just trying to, you know, through your own minuscule wisdom, discern what's a healthy way to approach your sexuality in a romantic relationship, you're going to need some help with that. And I think uh, while purity culture kind of went hard on that, uh, that's a really important principle to keep in mind, certainly yes. certainly for Christians. Absolutely. And we all, all need to go and read the Song of Solomon. The church doesn't, mm. doesn't we're, we're in this shambles because we haven't read the Song of Solomon. That may be a simplistic, mm. anyway, that's my bit of wisdom, not much wisdom, but I think the Song of Solomon tells you an awful lot. Zachary, I want to call you Wagner, <laughs> Zachary Wagner. Again, yeah, yeah. Uh, Wagner. Ordained minister and editorial director for the Center for Pastor Theologians. And the book from IVP America is called Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering healthy male sexuality it's one of the best things you'll read on the subject i've read a lot of stuff and it's it's uh, right out right up there i think it's fabulous and thanks Thank also you. to um rito uh, reverend ian reed of king's grace presbyterian church palmerston north new zealand and thanks to our creative team at liquid edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes guys thank you so much for this conversation thank you this was a lot of fun appreciate it we really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.